Welcome to the Singapore Noodles Podcast. I am Pamelia Chia and every week I speak with people who are keeping Singaporean food heritage alive in their own way. Today my guest is my dear friend Tony Tan who is living in rural Victoria like me and he is a really esteemed culinary teacher and writer and a huge champion of Asian food here in Australia. I chat with him about his vision for the upcoming cooking school and why exactly is he so persistent in preserving his own heritage after so many years of having left Asia. Hey Tony! Hi! Konghuasi Fa Chai! Happy Chinese New Year! How was your New Year? Well, I mean, the family just ate and gobble, 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 gobble as quickly as they could and it drove back. I have some uh, radish cake for you here. Oh, so sweet! I have some peanut cookies for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited to have you on the podcast because, you know, I feel that you are one of my closest friends in Australia and you're like so recognized here as a leading Asian food expert. Do you feel like you ever imagined your life to go this way? No, of course not. I mean, who would have thought that we are going to sort of become somebody of note, you know? And so it it was a little bit of a shock to the system. But on the other hand, I mean, you know, my journey was like all Malaysian, Singaporean or Asian kids who come over here, you know, we all wanted to finish university, then go back to Malaysia or back to Singapore or back to our own country and then just contribute something to society and then live like really very good Asian boys, you know, and Asian girls, you know what I mean? So therefore it was a bit of a shock to the system when, you know, it, to our parents particularly who turn around and say, what on earth have you done? You know, that sort of thing. So I came here to finish university and conversely, you know, do exactly that, what we just spoke about. But unfortunately for me, you know, I come from a restaurant owning family in Kuantan. So as a consequence, you know, it was really very easy for me to understand, you know, if you've got to kill a chicken, you've got to kill it, you know, very quickly, you know, and so therefore you've got to respect it for what it is rather than be, be you know, fooling around and all that sort of thing, you know. So as, as a consequence, I ended up working in a vegetarian restaurant called Shakahari, you know, and, and, um, and I had Malaysian partners at that time. So it was really very interesting to see. We were actually working for an Ango owner, put it that way. And then they were really very surprised that, you know, we were able to sort of cook vegetarian food, even though we were doing things like coconut cream pie was one of the things that I remembered very clearly. You know, uh, mushroom pate was another one that I remembered very clearly. And so, you know, it, you've got... You know, because you and I understand that once you are actually involved with food, it's part of our DNA because, you know, our parents are forever talking about food all the time, you know. So, so inadvertently, we are really very aware that, you know, food is part of our culture already. So when, when all that started, you know, I didn't realize that I was that curious enough to really want to sort of study French food, you know, and because at that time, back in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, French food was the thing. So uh, so that's what it all happened. And then I opened up my own restaurant in Sydney after leaving the partnership. Yeah. And I studied in France as well as studied in England, like I've told you. Mm. So... And, and then next thing I know was, you know, television found me, which was a bit of a shock 
to the system as well. And then before I know it, I was asked to write for newspapers and magazines because, you know, during the, in the interim, I decided to go back to university and study and, and on the, you know, on the advice or on the rebuke or the rebuff, actually, or on the critique of my sister who said, why are you wanting to cook Western food when you, or understand Western food when, uh, when, you know, in Asia, we've got such a long history of food culture. So, so that's how I ended up doing what I'm doing today. Fascinating that it was your sister who told you to focus on Asian food because, you know, like you said, back then, Western food or like French food was the in thing. So why did your sister have this idea of you focusing on Asian food? Because what she said was, you know, you don't really understand the Asian food culture because, you know, especially in China, you know, and I've taken a I've really, really sort of taken a, a, a almost like a historical approach to it because, you know, we've got some 5,000 years of food history, you know, and we, there may be, there are some record, recorded stuff, particularly ritual, ritual foods when it is really very important for us to, to you know, to, um, to observe the winter sources, you know, like for, that's why we ended up eating tang yuan, you know, and all that sort of stuff. So it was, very, it, you know, the more I got into it, the more I got really, really excited by it. Because, I mean, you know, there are cooking vessels that we have in China and drinking vessels that we have in China that dates back to, you know, the first century, you know, and, and well and truly before, you know, when people talk about gung, you know, you know, which is that really very thick soup, you know, there were containers that had, that were really very ritualized, uh, that, that were made, sorry, that, they were made particularly for that dish, you know. And so, and it's because we were observing so many rituals, like, you know, Qingming, there's another one, you know, sweeping the grave ceremony, you know, uh, Chinese New Year, there's an, or the Lunar New Year is another one of those things where it is really being important for us to be eating glutinous, glutinous rice cake, you know, particularly for people like us who are from the South, you know, so it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. So the more I got into it, the more I realized that why is it that, you know, we have, during Chinese New Year, we have to eat, you know, fish because, you know, that, the tonal sounds of it that you and you, you know, all of that is fascinating. So that's how I got involved into it. And so my sister said, turned around and just said, ha, now you know. <laughs> okay, curiosity really began through understanding the history of all these foods and utensils. Then what about for the cooking part of it? Like how did you get well, involved with um, learning how to prepare all these foods at home? Well, because, you know, like I said, my family comes from a restaurant-owning family already. So, you know, it was part of the ritual or, or the journey that I have in the food world was to really look at what the chefs were cooking in the kitchen, you know. And then, of course, you know, I'm the, I'm the owner's son, you know. So the owner's son don't do that sort of thing. You know, you've got to, you've got to get to a higher level of life, like, you know, doing university and all that sort of thing all that sort of stuff. So, you know, when I start observing and thinking back towards what my chefs were doing, you know, and like, for instance, you know, there, there, is, there is a dish which is called uh, gold coin chicken. 
I'm sure you know about it and I know about it too. And, you know, a gold coin pork, you know, and those chefs are gone because, you know, that's where I don't really want to sort of divert away from, you know, going straight into one of those dishes. But, you know, a lot of those dishes that we used to have once upon a time, they are dying and they're disappearing because we belong to a different generation. And your generation is even more, you know, into all kinds of stuff that, you know, we have forgotten. Yeah. So I find that, you know, it's, it, it, it really is, you know, in a way it's a bit worrying, but in a way it's also because, you know, we want to um, preserve, but, that difficulty is those experts, you know, are gone, you know. And once they're gone, and if they don't pass those secrets down to us or, or those methods down to us, we, we would have forgotten. So my journey is I've got to keep researching in my own head, you know, and reading books and speaking to people who may have an inkling as to how to create that gold coin, chicken or gold coin pork or whatever. And that was a fascinating journey for me. You know, that's an example. Yeah. Did you ever find it intimidating in that sense? You know, because right now you're being positioned as this Asian food expert when there is so much to draw upon and there's so much untapped wisdom and knowledge. So, you know, to be the representative of that kind of heritage and all that knowledge, um, you know, to have it concentrated on you, one person, um, do you feel that weight on your shoulders? Oh my goodness, can't you see my shoulders sagging? <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is extremely hard and I don't consider myself to be an Asian food expert at all. Because like I said, you know, when you've got 5,000 years of history, both as in China as well as in India, you know, because those are the two massive civilizations that, that, you know, that, that's what that makes Asia. And then, of course, then it filters down to Korea, it filters down to Japan from a, from a Chinese perspective, and it moves all the way down to where you and I come from, you know, to Singapore and Malaysia, as well as to Indonesia, you know. Like, you know very well that the word ketchup is a Chinese word, you know. So it's fascinating for me. And so for me, I really, really find it very hard to sort of take that mantle. But you know, what do I do? You know, either I let it go and just sort of sink into the ether or else then I've got to sort of grab it and really do my really, really best for the Asian community. Mm. And, you know, and for me, that is really very important because, you know, we really have got to think about, you know, there is that massive culture, there is that massive, massive heritage that we all have and that we really have got to bring it all together for future generations, yeah. particularly in uh, Western society. Mm, I totally agree with you. But do you ever grapple with imposter syndrome? Because that's something that I struggle with all the time <laughs> when I do Singapore noodles. Like recently, um, I remember posting about Hakka Yongtaku. And I was a bit worried because I'm not Hakka, you know. Yeah. Um, I've never made that when I was growing up. So, you know, when I was posting it, I was just really afraid. What if someone says, oh, I'm Hakka and that's not how my family does it. And I was just thinking, you know, for people like you and I who, who kind of represent this kind of culture that is so diverse, um, 
we are opening ourselves up to a lot of attack, you know what I mean? A lot of criticism. Um, and it's so much easier to cook something like a pasta and teach people how to make pasta and no one will say anything about it even though it's so bastardized, right? Yes. Yes, so true. But on the other hand, I mean, you and I have to remember that even despite the fact that we are in certain positions of being thrusted into the media, you know, the, what you cook is slightly different from me. You know, at the end of the day, it is all about the touch. You know what I mean? And it's also about how we are actually brought up within the confines of our society and our environment. So, I mean, you know, your Hakka Yong Tau Fu is going to be a little bit different from the other family. But so what? It doesn't really quite matter. And the other thing is we also have got to bear in mind that there are, you know, streams of Hakka people that come from, you know, they didn't migrate en masse from the north. They, in fact, they come over certain periods. So the, the, that family who's actually living up in some mountain in or some hill area, village in the south of China may not be cooking like just like somebody else, another Hakka family is doing. So, you know... We, they cannot make that kind of judgment. Yeah. And you always turn around and just say that this is the best of my ability. That's about all there is to it. Mm. Do you mm. feel that authenticity is something that you would ever use as a label for the kind of things that you cook? Like, um, would you say that this is authentic laksa or this is authentic chicken rice that I'm teaching you? I would turn around and just say that it is as authentic as I perceive it to be. But on the other hand, I mean, you know, like you said, you know, being in this kind of position, you have to be very careful. You really have got to think as much as possible and delve into that particular dish like the chicken rice or, or whatever, you know. And luckily for me, I can get away with Hainanese chicken rice because I'm Hainanese, you know. <laughs> And so, you know, and my family and my family makes Hainanese chicken rice the way that they like it to be. So I've been following their tradition, you know, so this is, you know, it's now three generations already. So, you know, how do, how do I equate the chicken rice that is made by my family as being inauthentic as opposed to another Hainanese family's chicken rice? Exactly. Yeah. I find it very problematic, the, the word authenticity or authentic, because with a culture like Singaporean culture or Malaysian culture, the cultures are constantly intermingling and the food is constantly changing. Just looking at the Yong Tau food that we enjoy in Singapore, it's now completely, you know, most stalls make it completely with fish paste, which was never heard of in China, right? And then the Cantonese came along and they started adding the Chi Chong Pan kind of sweet sauce, right? So at which point do we consider it to be authentic? You know, what is our true reference point if we keep insisting on looking for an authentic version? I think it's a lot to do with this, and that is it is only as authentic in that period in time, you know, and that we are able to sort of see, well, let me use that, that equation of the bakute, for instance, you know, uh, and your and your yong tau fu, 
in in Kuala Lumpur there is there is an area which is called Ampang Yong Taufu, right? Mm-hmm. And the Yong Taufu is made by the Hakka people. You know, and so if you go over there and eat the Yong Taufu, you always tend to think that okay, so this is the Hakka community, so this is how they do it. So therefore it is authentic. Right, but on the other hand, I mean, what happens if it is going to be a Hakka person who is actually living in Singapore, you know, and his version of his Yong Tau Fu could be different? Yeah. So, what what equates authenticity? Except that you know you've got to sort of maintain your culinary heritage. That to me is really very important. Mm. You know, to be able to sort of look and delve into, you know, what a particular dish is going to be representative of that particular area or region or family, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So, you know, that in itself, you know, the word authenticity is, is a very shifting definition. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Totally. I mean, what, 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 you know, like I've been experimenting with lard because you, you and I know that, you know, to have real lard, you've got to make it yourself because, you know, so much of that, unless, of course, you go and find it from some very authentic or, or, or very committed butcher, yeah. you know, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's hard doing that. So, you know, I have, you know, that I've posted it on Instagram about the use of lard in, 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 a lot of Asian foods and so on like that. And then, of course, some people turn around to say that, oh, that may be the case, but it is very unhealthy. So therefore, you know, uh, now we just use butter, you know. So therefore, there's a shift from something that was used once upon a time to somebody who's actually making uh, a particular dish, you know, like, like uh, what, what can we use as an equation? Um, egg tarts. Ah, egg tarts. Yeah. yeah. Or curry puffs, you know. Once upon a time, you know, that's what we were using. But now, you know, it's either butter or or even Crisco. So, you know, what do you say about authenticity? It's it's a very shifting one that I find that, you know, it's it's a difficult area. Mm. And I also find that also really very disturbing because... You know, my mother would turn around and just say that, okay, so this is what you're going to do. And that if you're going to use lard, you only use lard, you know, on special occasions. And, but you don't have to be eating lard every day. You know, yeah. something I was thinking about recently is that, you know, Singaporean and Malaysian food culture is so malleable and so all-encompassing. Um, but why is it that it seems like the dishes that we consider Singaporean and Malaysian, they were invented so many years ago and there, there has been no dishes, no new dishes added to our repertoire. Do you feel the same? Yes and no. As you know, that the, even back in Malaysia as well as in Singapore, a lot of the food culture is also dying. You know, we are so very caught up with things that are different in other parts of the world and so on. You know, I know that for a fact that in Malaysia, everybody wants to eat Wagyu beef, you know, or that we're moving to pasta more than eating Hokkien mee or whatever. And I find that, you know, there are certain dishes, like, for example, the yi sang, you know, that's, that's a good one because we're right during Chinese New Year. That's a Singaporean-Malaysian invention. And the Hong Kong people are, and the Chinese people in China are actually sort of adopting our dish so to say 
and claiming it as part of their own. And I find that fascinating in, in itself. Like, for example, there is, you know, Sita Tian Wang, you know, Sita yeah. Tian Wang, you know, the, the, and that is, um, what, are the, what are the vegetables? Eggplant. Petai. Uh, yes. And then two more. Long beans. Was it long beans? Long beans, that's right. Yes, long beans. And one more. I can't remember. But but you understand where I'm coming from, right? Okay. So that means, you know, those are, those are, you know, they're called the four heavenly kings, you know. Yeah. And, it's, and, it's, and it's just nothing but a vegetarian dish, sort of. And so that it's being cooked in sambal blachan. Mm. But, I mean, you know, these are things that are happening, but it is a, a slow evolution. Mm. You know, and it, it's not moving far too, not as fast as what's happening in the West, so to say. Yeah, but I mean, all these classic dishes, laksa, Four Heavenly Kings, Yusang, it all happened in like the 60s or the 70s. 70s or 90s. There was so much innovation and creativity back then. Why is it that now it feels that creativity has been stunted? Do you understand what I mean by, or do you know what I mean when I talk about, you know, there, there, there is a time when there's a flowering period in in, in a certain context or in a certain decade and so on. I'm talking from a historical perspective because, you know, the Renaissance in, that happened in Italy, you know, that happened in the 1500s, you know, late 1500s, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And that was a complete emergence of fusion of ideas, you know. And so, therefore, it was the same thing that happened here in Australia because all this happened... You know, the, the flowering of food in Australia didn't happen now, but it happened back in the 90s or 80s, you know, and it was, you know, there were several, if, if you're interested in history, you know, there is, there's one book called uh, One Continuous Picnic, you know, and then there was, at that time, there were, there were people like Chong Liu, who, you know, had an amazing restaurant in Adelaide, you know, and, it, and he was, you know, talking about, the, the, the new stuff that is happening, you know. So consequently, it, it doesn't surprise me if this is the same thing that was happening in the 80s and 70s, 90s, whatever, you know, the, during that period in both in Singapore as well as in Malaysia. And then su suddenly, you know, those creative geniuses just somehow or, or other stop being creative or that their virtues sort of burst forth you know, with new ideas and so on. And then afterwards, then they just go back to what they created and that's about all there is to it. Mm. And I, but on the other hand, I also believe very strongly in this. And that is, you know, that kind of energy of creativity always happens when there is a group of like-minded people who are willing to share ideas, you know, and this is why it's fascinating to sort of see that you know, the, the shift from France, which was the epicenter of good, great food, went to, went to Spain, then afterwards, then it went on to, you know, the Scandinavian countries, with, of course, René Rezepi sort of leading the charge, you know. So that, to me, is fascinating. But on the other hand, I mean, you know, we just have got to see the flowering of young chefs and young cooks that will happen in Malaysia as well as in Singapore or in Asia as a whole. 
I would love to know how was Australia like when you first moved here? I mean, when I moved here, I was surprised at how, how cosmopolitan it was and how easy it was to get food like um, Chinese food, like Sichuan food or food from Indonesia. But there is no Singaporean Malaysian restaurant, at least not many of them. So how was your experience like when you first moved here? When I came here, um, it was like, oh my goodness, you know, to get fresh coriander was almost an impossibility. Mm. I mean, you know, at that time, you know, there were, we have got to thank the Vietnamese for coming, you know, and that was as a consequence of the Vietnam War, you know, and so many of the Vietnamese who came over here. And so they, they were the ones who sort of, you know, brought their things in their pockets, so to say, you know. Whether if it is if it is legal or illegal, that's another it's another question altogether. But it's fascinating that they really really wanted to sort of bring their own you know laksa leaf. They wanted to bring their own sawtooth coriander, and so and that virtually sort of created that shift, you know, in terms of getting those the right ingredients, you know. And then afterwards, then then you know things. Um, Moving along, you know, back in the late eighties, you know, and early nineties, there were there there was a huge influx of main, mainland Chinese people who came over here, you know, pure, purely for whatever reasons, family reasons or migration reasons, and so on, and so that's why they brought you know all the Sichuan food, you know, that we we all love nowadays, you know, and that to me was really very fascinating. So back in the back in the seventies and eighties, a lot of that didn't exist. And as far as Malaysian and and um, Singaporean food, there were only two places, and that is, I mean, I'm talking about good Malaysian and good Singaporean. Huh? There are, as you know, that there are some that are just like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it is a little bit like. You know, as you know, you know, Pianang Mo, you know, that sort of stuff, you know, and so it, and that was really fascinating. And there's a place, there was a place at that time called Penang Coffee House. I don't really know the, the background except that the, the owner was a little bit aloof and he made beautiful Chakui uh, Tiao and he made beautiful Laksa. And then, and then, of course, down in um, Johnson Street, and it still is in existence, you know, and um, I can't remember what's his name, but um, he has, you know, just by the corner of Wellington Street, as well as in Johnson Street, there is an old uh, Singaporean um, restaurant. Lately, there seem to be a lot of, a lot of newer places. In fact, I stumbled upon it one day because of I could smell the blachan that was drifting from somewhere. And as you know, that shrimp paste is so strong, you know. And I followed uh, the, my nose and I went up a flight of stairs and there, and there were two women, Malay women, they were still in their tudung and they were serving halal Malay food, you know, and that was quite fascinating. So you and I, when we get back into town, we have got to go and look for it. And then, and then, of course, you know, out in Bentley, there's a place which serves very, very, very excellent mamak food. Yeah. So you get mamak mi goreng. And then there's another place just, just open called Kantan. 
on the what bunga kantan if you don't feel like cooking you know and you want to eat your laksa then you go to laksa king you know yeah. that said you and i know that once you go back home then you eat those flavors that 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 you know uncle has been cooking you know his chicken rice for so long you know and you know very well that you know it's incomparable to what is being sold here <laughs> yes and do you feel that um australians here um, uh, understand what singaporean or malaysian food is generally speaking yes hmm. but when you move further into when you move further into um into um the kinds of food that you and i love to eat you know like like let's say for example you know uh chitap you know uh in other words intestines and tripe and all that that you know then people would sort of feel cringe you know at the at the thought of eating you know offal i feel like there are an increasing number of restaurants here that serve offal like superling they do this master stock braised offal dish i need to qualify myself by you know when i turn around just say that like eating offal there are people who either love it and there are people who hate it there are oh. people who are quite happy to gnaw on a chicken bone mm. you know and eating and eating bakute and being able to spit out the bone but then there are some people who are who, who will not want to do that at all you know because they just tend to think that it's a little bit too hard sort of having to sort of hold with your fingers you know and knowing on a piece of bone you know and and all that which i find to me you know i just tend to think that you know to know on a bone i think is one of the nicest things yeah, to do yeah. <laughs> yeah but that's because that we come from a culture whereby you know we understand you know that's part of you know if you really want to eat a piece of chicken you know you've got to sort of you know eat all the juicy little bits where you know where the tendons are and it's yeah. just fantastic the knuckles yeah. the knuckles and all that oh my goodness you're making my mouth water <laughs> but you know i've never noticed that about australians i mean yes i noticed that they didn't eat much offal but i feel that singaporeans back home they don't eat a lot of offal either it's mainly the older generation that are eating things like kuih chap um i remember there was once i cooked this spanish um tripe and chickpea stew and i brought it mm-hmm. to buck and they wouldn't have it either because you know it, it was offal mm-hmm. even though it was spanish you know so i don't think it's an asian kind of thing and also i feel that you know I don't think they're that resistant to eating chicken on the bone or pork on the bone because they have things like um, baby back ribs that have been roasted, you know, on the barbecue oh, here in Australia, yes. or they have chicken yeah. wings. But I think one thing that they are very resistant to is eating fish on the bone. Yes, that's true. You know, like fish head curry. You know. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You know, you and I love eating fish head curry. I presume. Yes, I love But, it. The cheeks are so good. Yes, it's so fantastic. Mm. And yet at the same time, you know, I can still remember going to Pran Market, you know, and there is there is a, a there is a market there called or there is a fish shop there called Clang Bowls, you know. The only people who are actually willing to buy fish heads are Singaporeans and Malaysians, our Asian people, you know, who are very very happy about buying it. Or or that sometimes, you know, if there are no no 
people over there are not, no, I mean, there are no Asians there who really appreciate eating fish head. You know, they give them away because they just tend to think that it's such a waste. So it's very fascinating. But then, on the other hand, I was just also thinking that there are certain things that you and I possibly might find it strange to eat as well. I'm just thinking about there is, um, um, is it a Danish or is it uh, a Dutch herring? And I can't remember because I've only eaten it once. And it was so smelly that, you know, I just couldn't, I, I, you know, it was almost impossible trying to eat it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you know, there's also other things like patai that I find that some people find find that they are a bit resistant because of the smell. It's, it's just like eating durian. They are resistant to the smell. You know, sea cucumber, you know, because of the gelatinous quality that some people find it really very resistant. I just tend to think that as far as all that kind of stuff is concerned, it's changing, but it's it just needs people, you, we just need to sort of walk people through it. That, that's what I, I, you know, I like to see anyway. What do you think are some stereotypes that foreigners have of um, Singaporean or Malaysian food or Asian food in general? I, th- I tend to think that, you know, there is some of the stereotypes that I always tend to see is, you know, they always tend to think that Chinese food or be it if it's Asian food in general, with the exception of Japanese food, is considered to be cheap, mm. you know. And I don't understand why that is the case. So, you know, I mean, you know, as you know, to make a dim uh, sum, for instance, requires as much work as it is to be making a tapa, if not more. Mm. And why is it that there is that kind of stereotype perception that Asian food has got to be cheap? You know, and you know very well that some of the things that you've actually made yourself, you know, you know, like, for example, your yong tau fu, it takes, it takes time to make. And time is value, is, is equates to money, you know, to put it very, very crudely. And that's what I just can't get over. Why is it that people have got the idea that Asian food has got to be cheap? So that's why I always, you know, I always respect a restaurant like Flower Drum, you know, who, who as you know, is, is, you know, you don't go and pay $5 or $10 for two, two dim sum items or, 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 or hakao or whatever. But instead, you know, you have got to pay $15 for one of them because, you know, like for instance, you know, one of the, one of the most beautiful, beautiful things I've ever, ever eaten in my life was to eat their King Island crab dumpling, you know. Mm. And, and all they did was to use beautifully um, cooked fresh crab, King Island crab meat. They hand shred it, and then afterwards, then they wrap it up in a dumpling. And you're eating something that's pristine, mm. you know, and, and you're eating something that has got a lot of effort that's gone into it, and you're eating something that is of value, Mm. And you know, and that to me is simple but complex at the same time. Yeah, it's very, you know, very refined. It's extremely refined, and you know very well that there are restaurants in Singapore that are like that. You know, and there are restaurants in Malaysia that are like that. You know, and so you know that's why there is that perception. Mm. 
you know, that that is exactly the kind of Chinese restaurant that I love, but it's so hard to find here. Because yeah. I find that a lot of Chinese restaurants here tend to be Sichuan. Whereas if you go back to Singapore, it's very ting, you know? Like the Chinese food that you get in Singapore is so clean and so yes. pure. And you yes. can sit at like really affordable prices. Like right now, I feel that Flower Drum is the ultimate special occasion kind of destination <laughs> for me at least. Well, because it is considered to be, you know, one of the best Chinese restaurants, yeah. if not the best Chinese restaurant in Australia, because they are they're committed to that excellence, you know, and they are really very committed to the tingness and the purity of, of, of food. And that's one of the cornerstones about what Chinese, uh, no, sorry, Cantonese food is all about, you know, because that clarity of flavor is almost paramount to what Cantonese food is, is, is all about. And that's the reason why I love going to Hong Kong as well. Mm. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, like I, I, my famous line is horses for courses, put it that way. You know, if you ever do go with your husband to Hong Kong, you must make a booking to go and eat their dim sum at the Four Seasons Rungking Inn restaurant. It is as good as any Western three mission star restaurant in the world. The, the dim sum there is made to order. Absolutely love Cantonese food. And that's something that I really crave because it's so hard to find. It's really so hard to find. Now, I want to ask you, um, from the perspective of a cooking teacher, has it been difficult to introduce certain kinds of food uh, from back home to your students? Uh, do you curate? the things that you cook or serve? Both. I mean, you know, of course I have to curate quite a fair bit of stuff. I mean, there is, like, as you know, you know, there, there is still to a large extent that, that general belief that there are certain dishes that are really, that represents a particular culture. Like, for example, with Cantonese food or with a lot of Chinese food, there's always fried rice and sweet and sour pork. You know, like, you, you know what I mean. And then, like, you know, in, in Singapore, you know, there is the chicken rice, you know, and that is one of the, well, that's considered to be the national dish of Singapore. But the way that, you know, all these dishes are done, that it's done beautifully, you know, like one of, one of the things that, you know, um, I will preempt you, put it that way. Whenever I'm back in Singapore, I make, uh, beeline for Tian Tian. Hmm. <laughs> Tian Tian chicken rice. Yes. You know, and because it's so easy, you know, when I'm in the area, I make a beeline for that. You know, or that, you know, or that when I really want roti chanai, I make a beeline for those Indian shops that are just behind that. Um, yes, I know that, what you're talking about, Tony. It's my hood. <laughs> my hood in Singapore. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. So it's it's that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. And so you know, like so when I when I'm teaching here, you know, in in my cooking school, I have to be really very careful about how am I going to introduce something. So I always believe that you know, if you want to introduce a for foreign ingredient, you know, like patai, for instance, because you know, as you know, it's it's stink bean, but we all know that it's it's got great medic, medical benefits or health benefits. So when I'm doing something like this, I do it very surreptitiously 
rather than putting a whole handful of that in there, I put a small handful of that and cook it with something that is quite heavily spiced. You know, so therefore when they are eating it, they are they are just thinking they are just thinking. You know, students are just thinking they're eating a walnut or an almond, something that's really very crunchy and that's about all there is to it. You know, I just said it's a bean, right? Because it is a bean. So that's what I do. And then as the as students become more and more progressive in terms of developing their flavors, mm. you know, uh, their, 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 their palate becomes more and more sophisticated. You know, and then I introduce it more and more and more as I go along. And that's, that's how I do it. Like, you know, but ikan bilis is one of those things, you know, that we all know that is dry anchovies. And we all love ikan bilis. It's so good as a stock ingredient even, you know, like whenever I'm in a rush and I need to make soup, you know, I just throw in some ikan bilis just like the way the Japanese would use dried bonito, you know. And so I just throw that in. And then um, make the soup and, it, and I drink the soup. And so what's left over is the ikan bilis. Am I going to throw away the ikan bilis? As you know, the ikan bilis is so hard to find over here, particularly good ikan bilis. So of course, then I make that into something. So I'll take it out. Then afterwards, then I pan fry it with some onions or whatever that I intend to do. And then serve it, you know, as I go along. So there are certain things that I do that would sort of, I call a lead-in thing, you know, like rendang, for example, you know, it's, it's a very good lead-in. And then afterwards, then I start exploding from rendang into many other things. Like, for instance, you know, um, krabus, you know, ulams, you know, and salads and so on like this. Then you just keep expanding that way. And, and that is what I mean by, you know, curating certain things as I go along, or certain ideas as I go along, certain dishes as I go along, and then afterwards then exploding that, you know, and, and opening that, their horizon that way. I, I feel that whenever I have um, a foreign friend over, um, you know, I always struggle about what to put on the menu or what to put on the table because I want to present them a real slice of home, like something that they would have if they go into any Singaporean home in Singapore. But at the same time, I keep thinking, would they like this? Or is this like an acquired taste? Is it an acquired texture? So, for example, kui is something that I always steer away from when I have foreign friends over, just because I'm not sure if they would be happy or they would accept that kind of chewy, glutinous texture, you know? Um, and also with a lot of our in-your-face kind of curries, would it be too spicy? Would it be too feisty, you know? Um, yeah, so what are your thoughts on that? Um, that's a very difficult one, and I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> I mean, some of, you know, and some of the quays, some of the curries, that fire curries and so on. It, it, it's a difficult one because, you know, it, it's telling people to sort of, telling, you know, your, your Western friend who haven't really had that real experience. So it's a bit of a culture shock for them, you know, palette-wise, put it that way, you know, because they're just not used to it. But on the other hand, I mean, like, you know, it's taken my white sister-in-law, you know, um, some time to really understand certain, certain things that we are very used to eating. You know, now she loves quays, you know, 
But on the other hand, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it comes down to texture. It also comes down to, you know, slowly, slowly, slowly win the game. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. 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 So this is what I do, you know, like, for instance, you know, like, I've got that lopako, you know, that, you know, I'm, I'm keeping that for you. Some people will just love eating it because it's a chewy, gooey texture. Some people will find that it's a little bit odd, but, you know, horses for courses. Yeah, because, you know, sometimes when I look at or when I taste food from home, I think to myself that there is a very emotional attachment and nostalgia that is attached to the food uh, that makes me love it so much. Like, for example, angku kueh, you know? Like, like yes. when I eat it, I, I think of home because I grew up eating it. But yes. I can imagine that if I was not a person who grew up in Singapore, um, would I objective, objectively love it? I feel that maybe a cupcake would be more universally loved, you know, because it's so easy to like. All these actually come down, come down to education. and edu- not, not education, educating the palate. Mm. You know, and like you said, you know, earlier on, that when you came over here, you know, you see that it's, you know, so many places that you go in Melbourne, you see this. There are so many Asian places, you know, but those generic, and I call them generic Asian places. You know, you, you know very few of us would want to sort of step out of the, the safe zone because, you know, at the end of the day, a restaurant has got to make money, right? But on the other hand, I mean, you know, when you're going to sort of pre- present Angu Kueh, you know, that... I have to say, a lot of people will find it really very hard because there is none of that kind of emotional attachment to it. Because you know very well that even with Angku Kue, that it's also used as ceremonies as much as what we find in the in the, the wet markets and so on. And you know, until you are brought up in a particular culture, it is really very hard for us to really sort of respond emotionally to it. So, so yeah. Emotion, I feel that that is one of the driving factors that pushes both of us to to really cook so much, even though we are based in a different country, even though we're living, we're both living in rural Victoria. I feel that both of us are anomaly. I feel that a lot of people who move abroad and find it very difficult to procure ingredients, they would just give up on, you know, trying to preserve that part of their identity and heritage. What would be your words of encouragement for people who are struggling with that never give up that's 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 my policy never give up two days ago you know i um i was given two plants which i nurse as though that they are like gold and it's just nothing but pandan plant which you and i would virtually sort of you know you walk down to the wet market you, you just buy it for you know a dollar or whatever you know Whereas over here, it's almost impossible. Mm. So, you know, and I, you know, in time, which I will have a, a greenhouse or a glass house, because as you know, that in rural Victoria, it's so cold, mm. you know, and any tropical plants will die, you know, and I always turn around to say that, you know, look for it and make sure that it's going to work, you know. So if it means that I've got to drive all the way down to Melbourne to go and get Bunga Kantan, you know, that the ginger flower, mm. I will do it. But on the other hand, I mean, you and I are, like you say, are anomalies. Mm. 
So how do we, how, what drives us to be what we are? It's because that we've, the simple answer is we've got a passion for food and we've also got a passion for preserving a lot of our heritage. Because if we don't, it'll go. It's yeah. as simple as that. I feel even more Asian now that I'm living in Australia than ever before. And it was, you know, it came as a shock to me because, you know, when I was living in Singapore, I never really identified with being especially Asian, you know, or especially Chinese. But moving here, you know, I packed lunches for, for Wex, you know, for him to bring to work. And, you know, when we first, when he first took up his job and I first started making lunch boxes for him, he would tell me things like, oh, you know, can you not make things that are very Asian or like very Chinese can you make things like just give me a sandwich like a tuna sandwich like what all my colleagues are having and I just felt like the position of maybe an immigrant mother like like you know packing lunch boxes for her uh you know ABC kid you know and the kid saying no I don't want that I want like um you know Twinkies I don't know what they call those um microwave things yeah, and I was like, you know, if I'm not going to be firm on this and say, no, I'm going to prepare you Asian lunches and, and we're not going to be westernized, you know, by the time we go back to Singapore, I feel mm. that all, these, all this would be lost, you know, our, our identity as Singaporeans, you know. When, when I first spent my first Chinese New Year here, I didn't do anything, you know. I, I I hated Chinese New Year when I was living in Singapore and when I came here I was like, oh you know, it's fine. Uh it's gonna be just an, like another day. But when the day came and, and I didn't cook anything, I think I felt very homesick. The moment you go on Instagram and you see all your family having reunion dinners, steamboats, uh huge feasts. You know, you just feel that sense of loss. And I, I think that was what really pushed me to really observe all the different festivals um, at the same time as people back home were, like things like Dumpling Festival. I make sure that I wrap dumplings, you know, at the same time as people back home are, or, or National Day, making kaya, things like that. It's true. It's so true. I mean, you know, I tend to think that if we let that all go, you know, we'll, we'll just end up doing things that, you know, we'll regret much later in life, you know. I mean, for me, it is like I, I want to preserve so many things, you know, and if I don't preserve it and if I don't share it, then, you know, I'm not doing myself any, uh, any justice. I'm not doing society any justice. You know, and particularly, you know, there are certain things that, you know, like, you know, making kaya, you know, if you don't make kaya, then it'll go. It's, it's as simple as that. And then there'll be, you know, then people will be buying it from jars from the supermarket. Yeah. You know, and that I think it's it's really very, very sad. You know, in the past, I never knew that your heritage or your identity could be eroded just by living in another country. I always felt that it was one of those things that would stay with you forever. But then, you know, now, you know, when I come across uh, people from Singapore, Malaysia, who have lived here for a long time, and they have become so westernized, you know, and suddenly that becomes a possibility. Like, you know, if I don't actively participate with food from my own home, all this will erode definitely. Yeah, so true. So this is one of the things that I really wanted to do in my cooking school, you know, and that is my idea is to create a school of 
Asian culinary excellence. Because if, so in other words, what I'm doing is I really want to sort of showcase the best of Asia. Even though I'm living here in Australia, a big part of my soul belongs to Asia. So every time I go back to Singapore as well as to Malaysia, you know, I feel that I'm home. But this is also home. But, but being in that, in that Asian home or those Asian homes, I feel that I belong because of the way that I, the, the, the foods that I smell. And you know what I mean, you know, just walking down the street and all those familiar smells, you know, whether it is going to be somebody who is making either um, ping or somebody who is actually making, um, um, uh, what's that called now? Yutakwe, you know, and, and all that. You can smell the oil, you can smell, you know, the way that they're folding. You can see the yeast that's being, you know, the dough, the, the risen dough that is that, you know, uh, auntie or uncle that is sort of making it and then popping that into the hot oil, you know, it, it's such a visual delight, you know. So I really want to sort of replicate some of those things that I see over here and uh, over there by teaching them over here in, 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 in my cooking school. Mm-hmm. So um, it's going to be a tough one, particularly, you know, when I can't find ingredients. So it just, it's always like a mad dash back to Melbourne, then back again. So this is why I started, started making my own plum sauce, you know, and I started making my own kaya and all that sort of thing. You understand where I'm coming from. And yeah. And I, the thing that I noticed about your food is that it's always very produce-centric. Like you always focus on really good Australian produce and then having uh, Asian flavours. Was that always a very sub, subconscious thing or was it intentional? I think it was subconscious because, you know, and then afterwards then it became intentional because, I mean, you and I know that we are living in Victoria, right? How on earth are we going to go and get proper fresh fish, you know, for instance, yeah. you know? So therefore, you know, you've got to make do then afterwards. Then, you know, you use your network and then people just bring things up for you and so on and so on. I mean, you know, Luckily for me, from, a, from being here for so long, you know, I've been fortunate in the, in the sense that people know very well that I'm so eccentric that, you know, if I want to look for pandan leaves, then somebody will bring me pandan leaves. Or then, then like I've been really very lucky that I've been given pandan plants, for instance, you know. And that, you know, if, if I'm going to, if I'm going to, use curry leaves, you know, I will not sacrifice using dried curry leaves and I will have my own curry plant in living in my living room of all places. <laughs> but then on the other hand, I mean, that's the way life is, you know. And, and because I, you know, I, yeah, and even in Transom, I was really very surprised to find that somebody, you know, knows what, um, uh, what type of leaves are, you know, and that to me was really a, a real surprise. So now I've got a wild pepper leaf growing oh, in my garden. Nice. No, 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 in, 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 in my, just next to my kitchen sink because that's, that's the brightest part of the house. So it's wow. that kind of stuff, you know, yeah. but it, it just, so it just takes time, you know, like, yeah. can you remember what blimbing? Yeah. Do, 
delicious. I love that. Yeah, it's just wonderful. And it's actually growing here in Australia. Is it? So it's grown in northern Queensland. Right, with sambal and... and oh, <laughs> my God. Yes, yes. Wax used to have a neighbour with a balimbing tree. So we used to pick it and we used to cook it with sambal. So good. It is so good. God, we must be watching this conversation. <laughs> I've got one last question for you. So the moment this you know, COVID situation is managed and we are able to pop on a plane um, and get back to Singapore and Malaysia, what are some of the things that you are definitely going to have? In Singapore, it's definitely chicken rice. <laughs> there's, just, there's just, you know, Malaysia, Malaysia, there's no place in Malaysia that can do as, as well as what Singapore, Singapore does. You know, and it's going to go on record and then before you know it, somebody's going to send me a message and just say that you don't know this, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> But I don't care. I mean, I mean, I, I love I love Singapore's uh, chicken rice, and that's one of the things that I really love. And the other thing is, in Singapore, I would love to eat. Um, uh, gosh, what's that thing that you find in um, in uh, Tiong Bahru? Batomi. Yes. <laughs> and the other thing is siu pao. You know, I love siu pao. You know that you got to go to Chinatown for that. You know, and that is it's like you know a baked bun. You know, oh, I've seen that. So it looks it's kind of like a tashu sole, but it's like like a pao shape. Yes, yes. So um, so that those are things that I go for, and I, and that's one more thing that I also go for in Singapore, and that is um, the the pork jerky. What is it called now? <laughs> bakwa. Come on, Tony. Bakwa, bakwa, bakwa. Yes, because you see, I speak Cantonese more than I speak uh, Hokkien, right? <laughs> because in KL, you call it long, right? That Those are things that I will go for in Singapore. Yeah. And in KL, it's Hokkien mee because I prefer the Hokkien mee in KL because it's cooked over charcoal and it's got tiao uh, cha, you know, yeah. in, in it. Yeah, the, the pork crackling bits that are in it. That's what I go for. Uh, and I love it when they serve it with a little bit of that, you know, Chinese sambal blachan, you know, with that, which I think is just delicious. And with the lima kasturi, you know, and that I think is just fantastic. And I also go for nasi um, lemak uh, is the other thing that I go for in KL, which I think is to die for. And then Nasi dagang is something that we get, you know, from where I come from. And that is, you know, um, tuna fish cooked with a mixture of sticky rice as well as regular rice, you know. And they, they call it, it's, it's they, uh, they call it pulut dagang, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's from the east coast of Malaysia, particularly when it's wrapped up in banana leaf, yeah. when it's really nice and hot, you know. That's very similar that's- to, what's the other one called? Rampa Udang. Oh yes. Very very similar. Similar, but yeah, but not not really quite. But I love Rampa Udang as well. Oh, I've got all of it. Oh my god! I hope both of us will be able to go back soon. And you know, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. I feel like I've learned so much about you through this conversation. It was such a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been such a joy reminiscing about some of the things that we missed. 
That wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles Podcast. For those of you who are new to the show, you can find recipes on our website sgpnoodles.com and if you are keen on receiving more cooking tips and stories, you can sign up for our newsletter at sgpnoodles.substack.com That is S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K Thank you once again for listening to the podcast and I'll catch you next week.